I had to change brands. <laughs> Welcome to uh, today's episode of Coffee Talk on Things and Stuff. Today we are following up with part two of our commentary on October General Conference from 2020. And I have joining with me Radio Free Mormon. How are you doing, RFM? Good morning. How are you doing, Jonathan Streeter? I love that little cameo spot of you. That was great. <laughs> Uh, I'm doing good. I've been getting messages and comments uh, periodically, just people wondering when's the next part of the General Conference commentary coming out. And I figured, let's get it done. You had an opening, and so let's do it. And we have limited time, so we're going to dive right in. If there's anything that you need to follow up from or any commentary that you want to add at the beginning, then go for it. No, we definitely have to hit the ground running because we're going to be covering in two hours, the two-hour Saturday afternoon session from October 2020 General Conference. We did the Saturday morning session now about four, five months ago and always meant to get around to the other sessions. And now we're going to do it and we're going to try and do it before the next General Conference comes up in about a month. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we are now at the Saturday afternoon session. And uh, it looks like the, the you know, the, the doings of the business of the church is where we start out at. Would you like me to go ahead and start the timestamp, the first one that you get sent? Uh, actually, uh, Jonathan, you're freezing and your voice is okay. sounding kind of funny. Um, I don't know if there's anything you can do about that. I know you're broadcasting from Texas, which is a little bit cold this time of year. Yeah, we had a bunch of internet issues before. Uh, just, I guess, a little correct one and just let me know when it's going to start or you can start commenting on what you want to begin with. Okay, really good. Well, uh, at the very beginning of the Saturday afternoon session, President Iron gets up and he gives the uh, names of the general authorities for a sustaining vote. We're not going to go through all those. It actually takes about seven, ten minutes just to do all the names he's going to do. We're just going to give you a taste of it at the very beginning because once again, for the second time in a row, they're going to repeat what they did back in April 2020 General Conference, which is to uh, call for sustaining votes of the membership of the church for the leaders of the church in a situation where they have absolutely no idea and can have no idea as to how the membership is actually voting because they can't see them. They're not present. There's nobody present. They're talking to a camera and everybody else is viewing from home. All right. So I got the time stamp queued up. Let me add it in and look. Brothers and sisters, I will now present to you the general authorities, Area 70s, and general officers of the church for your sustaining vote. It is proposed that we sustain Russell Marion Nelson as prophet, seer, and revelator, and president of the Church of Jesus Christ of St. Alan as first counselor in I'm the sorry. first presidency and Henry Benyon Eyring as second counselor in the first presidency. Those in favor may manifest it. Those opposed, if any, may manifest it. It is proposed that we sustain Dallin H. Oaks as the Quorum of Twelve Apostles and M. Russell Ballard as being president of the Jeffrey Arland, Dear David A. Bednar, 
Quentin L. Cook, B. Todd Christofferson, Neil L. Anderson, Ronald A. Ratband, Gary E. Stephen, Dale G. Renland, Garrett W. and it is proposed that we sustain the counselors in the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles as uh. prophets, seers, and revelators. All in favor, please manifest. Contrary, if there be Okay, that's good enough. Hey, Jonathan, how's that looking on your side? Because it's having the, the kind of Zoom voice. It's all breaking up, and uh, the video's not running smoothly at all from my point of view. How's it from and yours? And I cannot understand a word you're saying. This is not good. No, I heard that. And I agree. Yes. <laughs> no, it's, do you want to just try and start again? Or do, do we need another link hookup or something? Just Well, unfortunately, I'm limited. Oh, you're doing by... good now. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, how's the bandwidth? Uh, bandwidth? Okay, so, what does that mean? Uh, I think that uh, Texas is still recovering from the great blizzard of 2021. Mm -hmm. So what I'm going to do is this is going to say broadcast reboot and reset. And who wants to give commentary on that? Just what you would have heard. Anyway, oh sure, sure. Um, so you go ahead, you go out, you come back in, and we'll. Before we do that, things. let's since it's working now, let's just see if if this works because this is the next time. I think this is kind of the the important part of it. Let's see if it works. Hold up. By the same sign. Those who opposed any of the proposals should contact their state president. Oh, Brothers yes, that's it. That's it. And he looks very stern when he's saying that last part. You can cut it there. Faith and all right. In I think, right. you know, we went through all the, the sustaining things, but then the real important part is right there where he talks about what you do if you don't sustain. Right. And once again, this is being done in a vacuum now. I have said this before. It, re it bears repeating. If this whole idea of common consent in the LDS church, as far as voting for their leaders, uh, we've long suspected that this has been nothing but a show and that the leaders really don't care how the members vote. They're going to go ahead and do what it is that they're going to do regardless of how the members vote. But when they could see the members vote, when the members were actually present in the conference center and before that in the tabernacle, there was at least a vestige of authenticity to what it was that they yeah. were doing. But now we know beyond any shadow of a doubt that they don't care how the members vote because they can't even see how the members are voting, but they're still going through this process, which lets me know that common consent as a principle in the restored LDS church is now finny, kaput. It's over, it's dead. This is the funeral service for common consent in the church. If anybody had any question about it before, that question should be resolved now. Uh, totally agree. Uh, it, it's kind of like, at least, you know, when they meet in person, there's the facade of, oh, look at all the people in the in the meeting, all sustaining him. And then, you know, I remember the classic scene from the past where the, you know, the, the guy doing this, like, turns around and says, you know, uh, I, it looks like the vote is unanimous. And yes. 
<laughs> and they could probably legitimately do that now. I know the 10 other people in the, the room who are running the AV could probably, I'm sure they're all voting positive and all the guys up there on the stage, definitely they're sustaining themselves. So yeah. they could do that now and not have any, I've got to think that President Eyring has got to be relieved with all the bad things that are happening with COVID and all this stuff about people not being able to physically attend general conference, at least this part of the presentation, the pressure's off. He doesn't have to worry about yeah. people raising their hands or yelling embarrassing things from the audience when he says, oh, any opposed. <laughs> That's true. Although, you know, if if some sort of ex-Mormon sneaks in there and is able to do it in person, that'd be great. Anyway, um, okay, so, so what's the next spot? I'm, somebody suggested I just turn off my video feed and that'll help on bandwidth. So we'll give that a shot. Well, no, so, no, you look like me, like I used to before I showed my face. <laughs> That's okay. Okay. Um, well, times now, the next talk is called Sustainable Societies by Elder D. Todd Christofferson. Do you have the timestamp on that? Because what he's going to do is he's going to talk about the church as if it's a society. Yeah. Let's see. Let's cue that up because I got that right here for us. Okay. In 2015, the United Nations adopted what was called the 2030 Agenda for sustainable development. It was described as a shared blueprint for peace and prosperity for people and the planet now and into the future. The agenda for sustainable development includes 17 goals to be achieved by the year 2030, such as no poverty, zero hunger, quality education, gender equality, clean water and sanitation, and decent work. The concept of sustainable development is an interesting and important one. Even more urgent, however, is the broader question of sustainable societies. What are the fundamentals that sustain a flourishing society, one that promotes happiness, progress, peace, and well-being among its members. We have scriptural record of at least two such thriving societies. What can we learn from them? Okay, we can stop there. Yeah. Oh, okay, so here, of course, he's going to be talking about the city of Enoch and the Nephites for the 200 years after Jesus comes and visits them. We already know that, right? When he says we have at least two references because these are always the go-to references. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh. But what I think is really interesting here is what he's going to do, and we're not going to play all this talk, and you can thank me for that later. But what it tells us <laughs> is he's not just talking about sustainable societies in general. Now, all of a sudden, he's going to be using code language. He's going to be talking about a society that is only a society in as much as this society that he's talking about reflects faithful adherence to Mormonism. In other words, it is only through being good Mormons that societies can be sustained. That's where he's going to go in his talk. And it's very interesting because he talks a great deal. And it's almost like he's talking in code. Like he doesn't really want to come out here and just say it, but you have to actually listen very carefully to what it is he says to understand that that's what he's getting at. So here he's talking about Mormonism as a society. And hey, before we get to that, yeah. RFM, it strikes me when you talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, when you talk a bunch, uh, you know, several of these religious organizations, the, they have a problem with the UN and they, the, a part of, I mean, when you sit back and say, why is it that all these organizations have a problem with the UN and it ties in, in Mormonism, there's a lot of this, um, 
American nationalism, fundamentalism that also has a problem with the UN. And I think it's legitimate in the terms of, you know, nations have this understanding that national sovereignty is important. And the people within a geographic region should have the ability to determine the laws that govern them. And the UN, because it's this now multinational thing that tries to create what could, you know, could sort of be laws that then govern these people, well, suddenly you've got this external group that's now imposing sovereignty of some sort over people. And one, you know, when you think about it, why do religions have a problem with this? Well, I think in some sense, it's kind of like a threat to their own authority you know, the religious people, in that there's this now secular, supranational organization that is going to impose principles and ideas. And you can see here the church, you know, no poverty, zero hunger, quality education, gender equality, clean water, sanitation, decent work. Some of those are kind of communist dog whistle things that people who are steeped in the um, the Ezra Taft Benson form of, of Mormonism would see this as communist dog whistles. Oh, yeah, you know, we're going to have decent work and zero poverty and zero hunger. That's the same sort of things that the communists used to try to create divisions between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie and, and all this other crap um, that kind of gets fed into there. And so it's interesting when you talk about like he's using code language, there's some some deep levels of code going on here that appeals to that really strong Ezra Taft Benson formality because, you know, there, say what you want about postmodernists, the idea of power being really central to all these different things is true. And so the church really has a vested interest in doubling down and making sure that any concept of what a good society is needs to come from the church, from the leaders of the church, not from any external secular organization. And that's exactly kind of what he's speaking to here. Yeah, I was kind of surprised to hear him start talking approvingly about the United Nations and their goals for a sustainable uh, what was it? Uh, he talks about sustainable society. It's the sustainable development. That's right. Yes. Mm. And of course, he only uses this in order to set up his talk. And what he's going to talk about is, yeah, the UN is doing this 230, 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. Now I'm doing it. But even <laughs> more importantly, even more urgently, is the church's sustainable yes. society. And of course, when you go to uh, the city of Enoch, it's an example, and the Nephites after Christ, that sustainable society is made sustainable only in and through strict adherence to yes. the commandments of God. So he's just using- As conveyed through the leaders. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so then he goes on, and we don't have the tape for this, but I'm, if we stop for all the tape, this would take mm -hmm. too long. <laughs> he says, unfortunately, as Elder Quentin L. Cook noted this morning, the ideal society described in 4th Nephi of the Book of Mormon did not endure beyond its second century. Now, this is going to be important later on because Elder Quentin L. Cook, which we talked about back in October when we did part one of this. Yes. He talks about the culture of the church. And yeah. there's this, there's this um, what appears to be a systematic and coordinated effort to start describing the religion of Mormonism with different terms. Elder Cook does it talking about it as a culture. And now Elder Christofferson's gonna do it, talking about it as a society. And I don't know why it is. And another talk, another speaker, later on in this session is gonna do it in spades, talking about culture. There seems to be this very uh, effort, this great effort to not talk about the church in terms of it as a church and to not talk about it in terms of religion, but to talk about it in terms of something else, even though they're all talking about the same thing. 
They're just yeah. using different words for it. I don't know why this is, but I can recognize that it's happening. And something that occurred to me was that maybe, maybe the leaders of the church are starting to get wise to the idea that a lot of people are not going to church anymore. It's that rise of the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so therefore, we're going to present the church not as a church because people don't like church anymore. We'll present it as a society or as a culture because everybody's really big on societies and cultures yeah. and, and justice and all these kinds of things within society. So we'll try and uh, portray the church as a society and a culture in order to get people to join or not leave. That's the only idea I can come up with as to why it is that they're doing this. Maybe other people have other ideas. You know, it's interesting because when you listen to ex-Mormons talk about it, frequently they'll say, you know, I love the the feeling of the support and the community of the church. That was the best part of the church, the people and the belongingness that you have there. And it's really just all of this, the religious dogma and how it, you know, inserts itself into your life. That's the problem. But the community and the society of the church is good. Now, of course, you know, you can go into deep layers of that and find problems even there. But it's almost like they're tapping into that mindset um, of, you know, what is good about the church? Well, it's the people and, and this, you know, the belongingness that you feel there. And there's one moment um, that you didn't timestamp, but, but there was a lot of uh, commentary on it that I felt like we should at least take a look at. Let me zoom it there. And it's when he's talking about people who, gosh darn it, even though they're not Mormon and they may not even believe in God, they happen to be good. What do we do with those people? And so let's take a look here. I think we would all agree that oh, those on. who profess no... I got, I got to click on the right window. Here we go. Right there. I think we would all agree that those who profess no religious belief can be and often are good moral people. We would not agree, however, that this happens without divine influence. Can you stop this there for a second? Yeah. Because yeah. he's going to talk about the light of Christ, right? And so first off, he does say that atheists can be and often are good and moral people. But then he's got to say, but it's because of God anyway. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> even though they don't know it, even though the, they don't believe in God, any morality or any good that they do is because of God uh, working through the light of Christ. And that's what he says here in the next paragraph. Yeah. To the light of Christ. The Savior declared, I am the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Whether aware of it or not, every man, woman, and child of every belief, place, and time is imbued with the light of Christ and therefore possesses the sense of right and wrong we often call conscience. Okay, can you stop there? Yeah. Nevertheless. See, the whole problem that he has and that he's trying to get himself out of after putting himself into it by admitting that people with no religious belief can be and often are good moral people, which if you follow that to its logical conclusion, would mean you don't have to have religious belief to have a sustainable society, which is his whole argument. And more specifically, you have to have uh, Mormon religious belief to have a sustainable society. So now he stuck his foot in it by saying, well, you know, you don't have to have religious belief of any kind to be good moral people. But now he's going to try and back himself out of it and say, nevertheless, even though I've already admitted that atheists can be good moral people, 
And you would think that enough atheists then could be a good, sustainable and moral society. He's going to say, no, no, no. It may look that way, but it's not that way at all. And I'm going to get myself out of it just by force of my saying it's so. And that's the next paragraph. All right. Well, we can continue then. Let's take a look. When secularization separates personal and civic virtue from a sense of accountability to God, it cuts the plant from its roots. Reliance on culture and tradition alone will not be sufficient to sustain virtue in society. When one has no higher God than himself and seeks no greater good than satisfying his own appetites and preferences, the effects will be manifest in due course. Okay, so there there it is. So even though atheists can be good moral people, enough good and moral atheists are not sufficient to build a sustainable society. Why? Because he says so. Yeah, because, well, you look back in history and the way that people have seen how these different movements happen, a lot of the times, I think there is this fixation on the communist uh, phenomenon in history. And it's specifically anti-religionist aspect of it. And you can even go back to the French Revolution and you see what they did with religion as well. And so you've got these patterns in history where when secular non-religious authority starts to go in power, that society breaks down. Now, you, you've got to have make sure if you're going to make this criticism that you're attributing the right thing. Is it is it that there was a disconnect between secular and religious authority that caused society to break down? Or is it that there were bad ideas that were bad regardless of one's position towards uh, religion that caused society to break down? And, um, you, you know, you have to have a much deeper conversation to talk about that. But you, there's no reason to have that conversation when you can just simply point to godless people and say they're the ones that caused it. Right. And I think one of the things he's studiously ignoring is the historical fact is that when you have religion, and belief in God, and you have people who believe in God in different ways, that that Mm -hmm. is often the source of conflict and not having a sustainable, happy society like in the city of Enoch or among the Nephites in the 200 years after Jesus came. So really what it is that he's promoting is not just religious belief in God or feeling that you're accountable to God, but also that you have a belief in the LDS version of God and that you're accountable to him. And of course, if you're accountable to him, you're accountable to his leaders, which are the leaders of the LDS church. Yeah. As long as you're all the same, then yes. there's not going to be any conflict. And what's that story in the Book of Mormon where the guy, you know, starts teaching things that are different from the one true way that the society has? And they like, they're like, uh, we got to bind him up and take him to the leaders. It's like, it's religious authoritarianism. <laughs> You're right. We got to take him to the, we got to tie him up, take him to the leader, have the leader take care of this because we can't yeah. have this happening. Right, right. As long as everyone toes the line and as long as everyone thinks the same way, then it's okay. It's a peaceful society. But you know, it, this is kind of what speaks to human history is like the reason that America enjoyed the freedom that it is, is like you have to take this idea that people are going to have differences, uh, yes, of religion as well as political views and create a society that uh, it tolerates it and is built on a pluralistic vision of humanity, which means that you do have to, as long as, you know, people are talking about ideas and not actual violence, then you protect the rights of individuals uh, to have their own conscience. Yeah. So even though he's talking about a sustainable society, I think he's making it clear what that society 
looks like. And it looks a lot like Mormonism. Then he has another statement where he got a little bit of flack. And actually, this is probably the most controversial part of his talk, though I don't think it necessarily should have been. But do you have that quote there? Yep. I think we got it next. I think it's coming up right now. For example, in which the in which individual consent, the only constraint on sexual activity is a society in decay. Adultery, promiscuity, elective abortion, and out-of-wedlock births are but some of the bitter fruits that grow out of the immorality sanctioned by the sexual revolution. Okay, there you go. And you remember what the controversy was about that line, right? Oh, yes, the bitter fruits. The bitter fruits. Out-of-wedlock births are bitter fruits, and he's causing these chil- he's calling these children bitter fruits, and people posting pictures of their their children who were born out of wedlock and saying, is this a bitter fruit? I know that that struck people on a visceral level. I I felt like I wanted to try and be as charitable as I can be in listening yeah. to people speak, whether they're leaders of the church or anybody else. I don't think that that's really what he meant. I certainly think that's a reasonable interpretation of what he was saying, but I don't think that's what he meant. And indeed, once this huge hubbub happened, they actually placed a footnote right out of out of wedlock verse and in the written yeah. version you find footnote, footnote 15 which by the way is one of the few cases where i have seen uh lds church leaders be responsive to commentary negative commentary by members of the church to what it was that they said so there's an explanatory footnote that's put in there and it says this in giving this example i am speaking so this is his footnote it's in first person. I am speaking of potential adverse consequences to children as bitter fruit and not of the children themselves. Every child of yeah. God is precious and every life has priceless value, regardless of the circumstances of birth. So he, he clarifies what he meant by it. And um, I, I'm going to take him at his word that that is actually a real clarification of what he really meant by it. But how interesting that there's actually this responsiveness now to a a controversy that was caused by something that a leader said in general conference. Yeah, I think that's a good precedent if that's something that we're gonna have now. And and it's not only a a responsiveness, but he gives the footnote in the first person. He says, in giving this example, I am speaking. So it really gives you a sense that he personally is responding to it. And it's funny because one of the things that he mentions about the problem with secular society that happens to be decent is that uh, they're not accountable to God. And when they talk about accountability in this context, what he's saying is that they are not going to subvert themselves to the authority of the leaders of the church who claim to speak for God. And uh-huh. in, in this case, there, you know, there is a form of accountability that these leaders are showing to members. Yes. Um, it, it's not real accountability. It's more like just saying, you know, don't misunderstand me. This is what I'm saying. They're they're never going to, or at least (laughs) the way that they have accountability is really going to be manifest by like the November 15th policy reversal. That was a form of accountability in that they changed their position because of the public outcry, but it was couched in terms of new revelation. Right. Uh, So they're, they're still the gatekeepers of God's will. Um, even though their prior uh, expression of God's will violated the conscience and Christian heart of many church members. Yes. So if we go to the next timestamp, here's the deal. is that he's already said that this sustainable society has to be built upon the truth of God. Yes. And now he's going to define what the truth of God is in, in a way that's obviously Mormonism. So here's where he really comes out and he makes it clear 
that when he's talking about a sustainable society, he's talking about one that is built upon the teachings of the LDS Church. The truth of God refers to the core truths that underlie his plan of happiness for his children. These truths are that God lives, that he is the heavenly father of our spirits. Mormonism. And as a manifestation of his love, he's given us commandments that lead to a fullness of joy with him. Super Mormonism. That Jesus Christ is the son of God and our redeemer. That he suffered and died to atone for sins on condition of our repentance. That he rose from the dead, bringing to pass the resurrection of all humankind. And that we will all stand before him to be judged. Okay. to account for our lives. Sorry. Okay. So he finally comes out and is clear about it. The only way to happiness is through Mormonism. And the yeah. only way societies can be sustainable is through Mormonism. Not just the underlying generic principles he's been talking about, but Mormonism itself. So my question then, and it's maybe rhetorical, I don't know, is why is he being so cagey about it? Why is he talking about it all in terms of, of a society when actually what he means is the religion? What do you think? Yeah. Well, I mean, he specifically says, it's not just that God exists and that he loves us, is that he gives us commandments for which we will be accountable. And this is where the, the works aspect of Mormonism becomes front and center. And Mormonism, they play loose and free with this whole debate of grace versus works. So you'll get Uchtdorf, he'll come up and it'll be all about grace. And then you get someone who's more old school like Christopherson who talks up and he hammers it home that it really is a works notion. And, you know, it sounds good, like to, to the wider Christian world, when they think about God's commandments, everything is subordinated to the great commandment of loving your neighbor as yourself and loving and loving God in a way that is equal to that. And so people can take that as expressed in their lives as showing the same degree of love for their neighbor and that any other interpretation or expression of religiosity has to meet that standard. And in Mormonism, it's it's God loves us and so he gives us commandments. And so now these commandments become things unto themselves as long as they come from the mouthpiece of God. And we've seen, you know, certainly in the history of your podcasts and church, you know, anyone that talks about polygamy or any of the other things, those things that come from God change all the time. And, uh, you know, and some of them get pretty cagey. <laughs> so, I don't know. I, I, at the you're, you're muted. Go ahead. It's a good thing I was muted there. Go ahead. <laughs> well, the, um, you know, the, the bottom line at all points really is follow the prophet, follow your leaders, do what we say at any given point of time, even if it contradicts something that someone else said at one point, because as we covered before, obedience is the highest principle, the only moral principle in Mormonism, obedience to authority. Yes, and at the end of his talk, I think he actually comes out and says it. If you pay attention, if you have ears to hear, let him hear. There is much we can do as neighbors and fellow citizens to contribute to the sustainability and success of the societies we live in. And surely, surely, the most fundamental and enduring service will be to teach and live by the truths inherent in God's great plan of redemption. There he is. So in other words, the way Mormons can contribute to the sustainability and success of the societies we live in is to be good Mormons and convert others to Mormonism. Not only that, but we even have video from uh, some of the apostles going to uh, countries in Africa 
and South America that have experienced great economic hardship. And what he tells them is you can improve the standing, you can express patriotism in your country by paying tithing to the church. And it's just a, a different, more tangible way of expressing the same thing is that you support your society by financially supporting this $100 billion corporation from America. Yes. Are you ready to go to the next talk? All right, let's do it. Okay, this is called so Finding Joy in Crisis by Stephen J. Lund. He's the Young Men's General President. And this has got to be one of the most tragic and heart-wrenching entries in the General Conference Death March series because it involves his son. And as I was listening to him tell the story about his son, who tragically dies at a very young age from cancer, um, I think that there's even more going on than just talking about a person, young person for whom priesthood blessings were of no benefit. All right. Do you have that? Yeah, I got it queued up. Let's take a look. A few years ago, our little family went through what many families face in this fallen world. Our youngest son, Tanner Christian Lund, contracted cancer. He was an incredible soul, as nine-year-olds tend to be. He was hilariously mischievous and at the same time, stunningly spiritually aware. Imp and angel, naughty and nice. When he was little and was every day bewildering us with his shenanigans, we wondered if he was going to grow up to be the prophet or a bank robber. Either way, it seemed that he was gonna leave a mark on the world. And then he became desperately ill. Over the next three years, modern medicine employed heroic measures, including two bone marrow transplants, where he contracted pneumonia, requiring him to spend 10 weeks unconscious on a ventilator. Miraculously, he recovered for a short time, but then his cancer returned. Okay, let's stop right now. We'll play a little bit more later. There's a number of points about this first. And the first thing is to note, there's no miracle for Tanner. He's nine years old when he's diagnosed with cancer. He lives for three years, according to the story. And his third and last year of life would be when he was 12, which is the same age he became a deacon. That'll become important later on. Number two, we know that multiple priesthood blessings must have been given Tanner, but none of them healed him. Devastating, devastating story. And I'm not here to make fun of this story. I always have to say this when I'm talking about General Conference death march, especially about such tragic stories of young people who die of painful, painful, horrible deaths. But we do know that there was, uh, there were multiple priesthood blessings. He doesn't mention it, but duh, of course there were from all sorts of people. And we know that none of them had any effect. So that's very unfortunate. It's tragic, but there's no miracle for Tanner. Number three, in spite of the fact that there's no miracle here for Tanner, I note that Elder Lund will put the word miracle or miraculous into a story no less than three times. The first one he just used when he said, um, miraculously, he recovered for a short time, but then his cancer returned. Okay. So I'm not sure if that's miraculous uh, when his cancer returns, but uh, that's the word he uses. So now if you'll go on, now he's going to talk about something that happened one particular Sunday morning when Tanner was 12. He's got less than a year of life left, according to the story. He's just become a deacon when he turned 12, and he wants to go to church in spite of how badly he's feeling in order to, uh, I think, uh, administer the sacrament. 
Yeah. And I think to give him credit, the, um, you know, any family dealing with this, when you have a period of remission, it is going to feel miraculous, especially if he's coming out of being in a coma and suddenly you can interact with your child again, it is going to certainly feel miraculous. So I can, I can definitely see him using that word there. All right. So yes. let's continue um, and go here. Shortly before he passed away, Tanner's disease had invaded his bones and even with strong pain medications, still he hurt. He could barely get out of bed. One Sunday morning, his mom, Colleen, came into his room to check on him before the family left for church. She was surprised to see that he had somehow gotten himself dressed and was sitting on the edge of his bed, painfully struggling with a button to button his shirt. Colleen sat down by him. Tanner, she said, are, are you sure you're strong enough to go to church? Maybe you should stay home and rest today. He stared at the floor. He was a deacon. He had a quorum and he had an assignment. I'm supposed to pass the sacrament today. Well, I'm sure somebody could do that for you. Yes, he said, but I see how people look at me when I pass the sacrament. I think it helps them. So Colleen helped him button his shirt and tie his tie, and they drove to church. Clearly something important was happening. <sighs> You're muted. So let's uh, bring you back there. Sorry about that. Yeah, it's, That's right. uh, it's a very moving story. Obviously, he's moved as he's recounting it, and uh, understandably so. But yeah. at this point, we know Tanner's a deacon, and I mentioned about his being 12 years old, last year of his life. He's in great pain. We'll find out later in the story he is bald at this point due, no doubt, to chemotherapy. And Tanner will be gone before the year is out. But what else do we find out from the story? And this is what I found especially tragic about the story, which has to do with the importance that Mormonism places upon church, even over and above members of their own family, even over and above members of their family who may be suffering from um, uh, illnesses such as cancer, even terminal illnesses. And that is that this particular Sunday, Tanner's mom is getting ready to leave him home while she goes to church. Did you catch that in the story when he told yeah. Jonathan? Yeah. 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 Because basically, uh, what is it she says? Um, she says, are you sure you are strong enough to go to church? Maybe you should stay home and rest today. Because she's going to be going to church regardless. Mm -hmm. And it's presumably the rest of the kids are going to be going to church with her. Because that's what we do as Mormons on Sunday even if we have a, a terminally sick child at home, apparently. Now, I do want to already say, got stage four disease with bone metastasis. Well, yeah, thank you for that medical. Yeah, you see, <laughs> you, you see things in this that I don't see. <laughs> Good job. Um, you want to, can you translate that into English? Well, I mean, th this is this is as severe as it gets. And they have to have a sense at this point, especially if it's, he's been in remission before and it's come back. You, they have to have a sense that their time with their son is going to be limited. He doesn't it's, talk about what specific malignancy or cancer that he has, but you know, a lot of these childhood cancers um, are devastating in their effects. And um, I don't know, it, it's hard. Like you, he does a good job of putting you there emotionally where they were. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, Mormonism as a story gives people hope. 
because of the narrative about the afterlife and eternal families, it gives them a different set of tools to confront these types of difficulties. And when the coping and the pleasant peace imbuing aspects of Mormonism is tied to obedience and performance in the religion, then you can almost get the sense that his desire to fulfill his calling is that out of a real desire to fulfill his calling? Or did he, as a young man, get talks about how if you don't endure to the end and go to church and do your stuff, then you may not get all of the blessings that God has for you. You may not be worthy. I mean, this notion of worthiness and it's tied to your eternal state um, can affect you. And particularly in young children who take those things very concretely and literally, um, I don't know, it, it's hard to... you know, to really dig into this without acknowledging those things. Yeah. And the way I look at it is this, is that what the church teaches is, of course, you have to be a faithful, strictly observant Mormon in order to go to the celestial kingdom so you can have your family together with you forever. And all that they're doing and what's being revealed in the details of the story is that they are doing exactly that. They're going to go to church. They're going to fulfill their callings, whatever they might be at church. And they're going to do that so they can be together eternally with Tanner, but they have to leave him at home in order to do it because he's too sick to go to church. And obviously this isn't the first Sunday this has happened, right? I get the impression this is something that's a pretty regular kind of thing where he's too sick to get out of bed. So they leave him at home, go to church. I don't know if they provide someone there to care for him. That detail isn't given. No, I would hope that they did. But, uh, But nevertheless, they've got to go there because this is what gets taught is that in Mormonism, We have to sacrifice our families in the here and now in order to be with them forever. Yeah. Which is why the dad isn't even himself there, you know, to have this conversation. Right. He's not there in the house. And we find this out in the very next paragraph of his talk because, yeah, what about the dad? What about the guy who's telling the talk? Let's let's take a listen. Let's take a listen. Uh, Boop. I came to church from an earlier meeting and so was surprised to see Tanner sitting on the deacon's row. Colleen quietly told me why he was there and what he had said. It helps people. There it is. There it is. And this is exactly what we'd expect, especially from a guy who is now a uh, a general authority, right? He Uh, has, yeah. yeah, he has leadership. He has leadership calling and he's gotta be at other meetings. So even he isn't at home during this conversation that his wife has with his son, because he's already at church. He's got leadership yeah. meetings he has to be to, which he indicates where he says, I came to church from an earlier meeting. Yeah. The, um, you know, it, it, it's, he talks about how his son got an infection that, um, you know, put him in a coma for a period of time. And one of the things in the treatments for a lot of these cancers is that you are devastating their immune response. And so many times people would be staying at home or staying isolated because you want to limit their exposure to community infectious organisms so that their weak immune system does not become overwhelmed unnecessarily. And so there may have been a legitimate reason for him to be at home, uh, but that would also be a further reason for his family to stay there with him rather than going out and, and picking up whatever they might bring home to him. Um, but that that aspect aside, someone mentioned in the comments that um, Stephen Lund is an executive at New Skin, 
which has been pushing multi-level marketing products for decades. And if you're familiar with the culture of New Skin and its associated um, multi-level marketing um, products, there is a mindset that that denigrates traditional medicine for these uh, herbal or natural solutions to it, to the extent that you'll have stories like this one, where you have a woman who was involved in New Skin and Pharmanex, which is their, you know, their more medically flavored expression, that reject medical science in favor of this thing. And that's why kind of where you get the intersection of, you know, distorted notions about healing and health and the power of priesthood or herbal medicine to address things like cancer. And, you know, when you start letting religious authority override science authority, med medical science, that's where you really have some problems here. But another thing that um, was mentioned was that uh, if you look at the filings for the More Good Foundation, which we've covered before as kind of a shadow funding arm of the church to get propaganda out there in forms of things like uh, the Three Mormons, now Saints Unscripted, some of these up and coming general authorities end up donating significant amount of money to these efforts. And someone suggests that you can find uh, his name among those filings. We would, of course, have to confirm that. But it just adds an interesting dimension to how somebody on, you know, an executive at a multi-level marketing firm might find himself giving a talk at general conference. Ah, uh, well, that's a good point. The thing that I find so tragic about this is that I know, I mean, I think we know, we can presume that this, uh, this father has a job where he works at least 40 hours a week during the week and maybe more uh, since he was an executive and uh, finding that out. Uh, so he's not at home much anyway. And we also know that if he's got leadership position callings, he's got meetings during the week as well. And so it's just this continual pull of the church of the father away from being there for his son so that he can be a good Latter-day Saint and attend his meetings. We know that that's part of the package, yeah. right? You got to attend your meetings to be a good Latter-day Saint, all for this hope that they will be together in the next life. So he's missing out on Tanner in the here and now with the hope that he'll see him in the next life. And, you know, yeah. I, I hear stories like this and I, I hope he's right. I got my yeah. doubts, but I, I would really hope that he's right because if he's not, this is even more tragic to me. Yeah. I think this is why you find so many people who later in their life when they discover the fraud and the absent foundation of Mormonism, look back on the sacrifices that they would have made like this for their family in the in the hopes of an eternal uh, existence with their family. And they, they have a whole new levels of grief over what they lost because of adherence to a deception rather than the church being what it actually stands for. Now, do yes, we want to continue on this? Um, we're not We're not going to because there's too much and we have too little time, but I do okay. want to make this one last point to tie it off, which is that the church continuously talks about how important the family is. They talk about it, they talk about it, they talk about it, and yet this talk is a classic example of when the choice is between being at home with your son during his last year of life or going to a church meeting where is the father found? Yeah. The church this, is always more important. Whenever it comes to a choice mm -hmm. between the church and the family, you are always supposed to choose the church. Yeah. And we're going to take the struggles that you have in doing that. If you're afflicted with something as devastating as uh, cancer that will take your life, and we're going to call that a miracle, even if 
your cancer takes the same course that any other cancer has taken for people who aren't Mormon. But we're going to say it's a miracle because in the midst of your suffering, you went and did the church things. Yes. And, and when he quotes his son as telling the mother that it's important for him to be there, for people to see him passing the sacrament, it helps him. Mm-hmm. It made me think of a Christmas carol and what Tiny Tim tells his dad. Because, of course, Tiny Tim is crippled, right? He gets around right. with crutches. And this is um, uh, his dad. Uh, I'm drawing a blank here. Uh, Cratchit. Bob Cratchit, oh, right? Yes, yes, Telling yes. He, he takes uh, Tiny Tim to church and they come back from church on Christmas Day. And this is him talking to his wife. He says, somehow he, Tiny Tim, somehow Tiny Tim gets thoughtful sitting by himself so much and thinks the strangest things you ever heard. He told me coming home that he hoped the people saw him in the church because he was a cripple. And it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. It's a beautiful expression, although when I read that, uh, in a Christmas Carol, I think, yeah, it makes him think of the guy who made la- lame beggars walk, but apparently he's not doing a lot of business anymore. <laughs> you and, are so cynical. Well, I mean, yeah, <laughs> here's a, here's a, here's a cripple. You know, this will make people think of Jesus who healed cripples. And then hopefully they won't take the next step and think, so how come he's not doing that anymore? And that's certainly the same thought that comes to my mind with the story about Tanner. It's tragic. Well, as yeah. It and it just, it, it speaks to how a, a, sad story, a devastating, tragic story, where in the midst of tragedy, someone still does the religion thing, does the churchy thing. It's such a good bit of propaganda, because then it it imposes now everybody who's got full, healthy body, normal life can say, gosh, if this person in the midst of, of cancer and bone cancer is doing it, then what excuse do I have? You know, I, I've, I'm complaining, and this little boy is a boy. He's a deacon, and he did it. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's really powerful stuff. It leaves everybody without excuse to sacrifice their entire lives and their families upon the altar. And in a way, it's almost self-justifying yeah. for him to tell the story as to why it was that he was going to church instead of being at home with the son by telling a story about his son going to church in spite of all the yeah. pain to pass the sacrament. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. All Next right, one. are we on to Gong, the Gong Show? The Gong Show. Every time Elder Gong speaks, I think of Chuck Barris and the Gong Show from when I was a kid. All nations, kindreds, and tongues. And here, he's going to talk about a family, a wonderful family who he has introduced by talking about them all being at the temple. So we already know this is a family. This is a good family. And they're having trouble with their neighbors. They're trying to be good neighbors, you know. Of course, we know why they're trying to be good neighbors, right? To try and get their neighbors to join Mormon, Mormonism. But but he's going to talk about them. He's going to talk about a prayer because they're not getting along with their neighbors. The neighbors are not buying what they're selling. They're being standoffish. And uh, they pray to have their hearts softened. The Mormon family prays to God to have the neighbor's hearts softened so that they will, you know, be more accepting of them. And God answers their prayer in a rather novel way. All right, let's take a listen. The family had sought to be good neighbors wherever they lived. However, one community had been unwelcoming because, the bride's mother said, their family were members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The family did everything to make friends at school, contribute and be accepted, but to no avail. The family prayed and prayed hearts would soften. 
One night, the family felt their prayers were answered, though in a very unexpected way. Their house caught fire and burned to the ground. But something else happened. Boom. The fire softened their neighbors' hearts. There you go. There you go. So they pray that their neighbors' hearts will be softened, and God hears their prayers and burns their house to the ground. You've got to be careful when you're praying to, to God, at least within the Mormon context, because he is, you're taking your life in your hands, really, when you pray to God for anything, because the house burns to the ground, the fire department shows up, and there's God standing there with the matches still in his hands. Ah, uh, now help me understand this. So the, the family was Mormon, and they move yes. into a community, and they feel like the community is just, you know, they're ostracizing them, mainly, and they're like, it's because they're Mormon. It's because they're members of the church. That's the reason that they're being ostracized. That's playing the persecution card. Yes, it's playing the persecution card. And then it's funny because, you know, when you go through the process of maybe having played that card in the past and, and said that that's a good explanation for it, and then you leave the church and you look back on that. And many people even describe being able to now talk to their neighbors after they've left the church. And then the neighbors are like, yeah, man, like it was really hard to interact with you because you were just like always inviting us to church. And that's like, there was no normal like you can't be a normal neighbor you can't just be like right. hey what's going on because every conversation ends in an invitation to go to the church it's like i just want to you know hang out and say how's the lawn greening up or whatever and so they don't realize that you know the totalistic nature of the church where you have to inject you know every member a missionary you have to inject the gospel into every conversation it alienates people because some people the religion is just it's a part of their life that doesn't need to be part of the battlefield, doesn't need to be part of the normal conversation, but Mormons put it there. And so then people just like, you know what? I don't want to have those uncomfortable conversations, so I'm just going to avoid them. And it's not, you know, they're bad people. It's just that they make things weird. Yeah. And I don't want that weirdness. No, absolutely. Some people actually do get wise to the fact that they're a project. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and they don't have to be really that intelligent. Yes. Um, but yeah, this is one of those goofy stories that warn Mormons to be careful what they pray for. Uh, these guys, they just want to be accepted by the, these neighbors. So God says they're freaking house on fire. Really? Whose side yeah. is God on anyway? I mean, why not set the other people's house on fire? Why not just do a miracle and soften their hearts like, you know, the, the Bible says God does with Pharaoh, right? Uh, yeah. And like this good family was praying for. Or, or is it possible that there's actually no connection between the prayer and their house catching fire? God would only hope so. <laughs> well, it's funny because I, I had this, you know, I don't know if you remember, like I remember there'd be talks about every every Mormon a missionary and you got to invite people to church. And, and I, it used to cause me a great deal of personal distress because I always felt uncomfortable doing that. And at one point I just drew the line and I just said, you know what? I'm never going to feel guilty about that again. I'm just going to be good friends to my people, to my neighbors, or to people I come in contact with. And if they want to join the church on their own or whatever, then that's good enough for me. I'm just going to let go of that imposition. It it really helped my mindset to just let go of that and then just reinterpret that in my own head. Uh, but you got to think about these neighbors. Like, even if they were feeling the way that I just described a little bit ago, where they're like, you know, those people are weird. Somebody in your in your neighborhood has their house burned to the ground. Of course, you're going to be compassionate to them. Well, that's why God and, was so smart in doing that. 
Well, no, it's just that, you know, these people are good people. It's, it's when you get to the sense that, you know, the natural man is an enemy of God and it, you, it's, it immediately starts you with this level of suspicion and the assumption of iniquity of, of all the people who don't have the gospel. And it, I think it, it takes away your ability to really be charitable to them uh, for what they are. Well, you're right. And not only do you not want to pray to God for certain things, you also don't want to be a good person in the LDS church is what the moral of this story is. If you're good oh, yeah. and you pray, your house gets burned to the ground. Thank you so much, God. Yeah. And your ability to stay humble through it all. Now, you you have another timestamp here where they talk about the Smith home. I do. But I did, I did want to say one other thing. I know we're, we're at the hour mark. We've only got an hour left. That's OK. We'll yeah. just have fun. We won't get through everything that we wanted to get through. We'll leave some stuff on the floor on the okay. cutting room floor. But no, this reminded me of the whole genre of the stories of people who make deals with Satan, <laughs> which I read when I was a kid, right? Because when you're making a deal with Satan, you got to be very careful when you're laying out your terms because you know he's aiming to screw you. That's true. And, it's the monkey paw. Yes, and the, exactly. There's so many different stories. The basic story is you make a deal with Satan. Usually it's for your soul, right? And yep. uh, But you want a long life. You want to have a very long life. You want to live to be 100. Okay, because you're scared uh -huh. of death. So Satan says, okay, sign here on the dotted line. The next day you get hit by a bus and now you're a quadriplegic for the rest of your life, but you live to be a hundred. Yes. <laughs> you know, and that's and that's the whole thing, right? Because you can't trust Satan. You have to lay it out and you have to say, okay, and I don't want to get hit by a bus and I want to be in good health and all this stuff. It's like <laughs> when we we're praying to the LDS God, you got to do the same thing. So please soften my neighbor's hearts, uh, but don't burn, our, burn, don't burn down our house <laughs> while you're at it, okay? <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, you know, ch chances are he was well insured because. Uh, <laughs> I hope so. And he doesn't talk about their little poodle that, you know, got yeah, caught up in the flames, didn't get out of the house in time. That, that'd be terrible. OK, so this is this is now a separate part of his talk. And here he's going to talk about um, the Smith home. He's going to talk about Moroni and he's going to give um, a commonly heard argument, which is, I think, misleading. But it's good in that it shows that Joseph Smith was a prophet. All right. That prophecy was received here at the Smith family log home in Palmyra, New York. This second story bedroom occupies the same 18 by 30 by 10 foot physical space where Moroni is a glorious messenger from God came to the young Joseph on the evening of September 21st, 1823. The prophet Joseph recounted, Moroni said God had a work for me to do and that my name should be had for good and evil among all nations, kindreds, and tongues. Moroni said there was a book deposited that the fullness of the everlasting gospel was contained in it. Here we pause. We worship God the Eternal Father and his son, Jesus Christ, not the prophet Joseph nor any mortal man or woman. Consider how the prophecies God gives his servants are fulfilled. Some are fulfilled earlier, some later, but all are fulfilled. As we hearken to the Lord's spirit of prophecy, we can become in our own way part of the fulfillment of his prophecies and promises, part of the gospel blessing the world. In 1823, Joseph was an unknown 17-year-old teenage boy living in an obscure village in a newly independent country. Unless it were true, how would he imagine to say he would be an instrument in God's work and translate by God's gift and power sacred scripture that would become known everywhere? Yet, because it is true, you and I can witness that prophecy being fulfilled 
even as we're invited to help bring it to pass. There we go. Mm. Okay. So here's the deal. First off, technically, the prophecy that he's just quoted doesn't say anything about the Book of Mormon being known everywhere, like he sort of imputes uh, into it. Okay, uh, okay. But the, the more important part, of course, is that Joseph Smith, he doesn't say when Joseph Smith said that Moroni said this. You'll notice. Mm. Uh, Joseph Smith does not put these words into Moroni's mouth until he's writing or dictating the history of the church in 1838. Uh, so he's saying Moroni appeared to me back in um, 15 uh, years ago. Yeah, 15 years ago. And I haven't mentioned it before, but get, uh, I'm just remembering now that what he said was this, that my name would be had for good and evil among all nations, kindreds, tongues and people. Now, of course, this whole thing is that how could he possibly know that in 1823? If Joseph Smith is making it up and an angel didn't really appear to him, but he's saying one did. Yeah. And that this angel said this incredible thing, which actually came to pass. Um, although I think you could argue whether it's actually come to pass the way it's written. But, you know, he is known broadly and certainly in different nations. And people have different opinions of him, some good, some bad. So how could he have made that up if indeed that's what really happened? It was a prophecy that came to pass. Well, the problem is this is apparently a backdated prophecy. And it's one that Joseph Smith comes up with in 1838 but backdates it to 1823. Now, what is the significance of Joseph Smith saying this in 1838? Uh, what, 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 did they start the missions to England around that time or something? 1837, yeah. So they oh. sent the apostles to England and boom, this is the biggest mission field they've ever had. They haven't had anything like this in any of the United States. You know, they're going from place to place. They're getting run out of town, but uh, England, they're baptizing hundreds and even thousands of people. It's like they can't uh, baptize them fast enough mm. in England. And so, and of course they're, they're having some opposition as well in England. But now, now Joseph Smith knows in 1838 that his name is had for good and evil, at least in two countries, probably Canada as well, because they've been up there with missionaries <laughs> by that point, but also over in England. And now all I can say is that it would seem a lot more reasonable for someone to say that their name will be had for good and evil among all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people in 1838, if you're Joseph Smith, yeah. than, if, than in 1823. Yeah, yeah. And once again, huh. in all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people, no, I don't think that's been fulfilled yet. No. <laughs> it's funny. One of the things that happens when you leave Mormonism is that you become fascinated by certain esoteric things. Now, you you know about people who are like, ah, true crime. That's my thing. I'm going to listen to true crime podcasts and watch true crime documentaries. Well, for me and for a lot of people that leave Mormonism, it's cult documentaries. I'm going to I want to learn about all these different yeah. cults everywhere. And so, you, you know, you just go to Netflix and you find, you know, search cult documentary or something. You're going to find all these different weird religious, political, all these different things. There's a whole series on them. But the fascinating thing is when you examine the leaders of all these different groups, you start to notice a pattern. And one of the pattern is uh, you know, people, they're, they're going to demonize me. They're going to say bad things about me. And that just proves that the work that we're doing is good because the forces of evil are coming against it. And it's just, it's like, okay, he's saying the same thing that all these other people said about not only, you know, that they're going to, the persecution that they're going to have is not legitimate criticism. It's proof of the legitimacy of their work. And number two, 
a lot of these people are narcissists and they do believe that what they're doing is going to spread the entire throughout the entire world and that all of their efforts are going to you know take over the world like a flood and so you're just seeing those you know the the perse persecution justifying and proving legitimacy and the uh delusions of grandeur that are built on a narcissistic personality just coming out in this expression but that's even removed from the fact that this is a post hoc retroactive revelation 15 years later but now when it's going to be used by the leaders the leaders are going to convey it as though it happened in the chronology originally you know the chronology proposed which is a retrofit and that is going to prove the truth of it because he you know he foresaw it even as a young child you there i'm here sorry go ahead no that's okay that's that's my rant i'm done i accidentally hit my elbow on the <laughs> the table and then I didn't hear you anymore, but it's because you got to the end of your sentence. Yes, that's good. No, it would be like, uh, I suppose me saying that an angel appeared to me when I was 12 and uh, told me that uh, I would become this uh, hugely famous podcaster uh, called Radio Free. <laughs> My name would be had for good and evil among all, uh, all members of the LDS church. And lo and behold, you know, uh, here I am. So obviously <laughs> that's a true prophecy. Well, there you go. Even though it's not technically true, and even though it's backdated. And even though it's fueled off of your enormous conference center-sized ego. Yes. Actually, there's not room <laughs> enough in this in the conference center for my ego. That's they're going to build another one. Um, so anyway, but now, now here's the next part, okay? What Elder Gong does is actually masterful, because we know the church is having trouble with its growth. In fact, it's going backward, I think. At a minimum, it's flatlining, and that's only with the statistics that they are using that it's yeah. flatlining and what he's going to try and do now, because it was very traditional in the LDS church to always give talks where you talk about how much the church is growing as a sign of its success. Yes. And I've grown up with those, but now what he's going to do is try and do something a little bit different. He's going to try and give the impression that the church is growing while talking about all these wonderful things about the church. But if you listen carefully, he's never actually going to give any statistics that talk about the church growing. I mean, if the church is growing, there's a very simple statistic that you can give to show that, right, John? Yes. <laughs> it would have to do with the membership. He stays yeah. completely away from membership numbers, and he's going to talk about all these other statistics to give the impression it's growing without actually saying it's growing. And the reason why is because it's not growing. Yeah. So here we go. Um, uh, well, he's already hedged it a little bit because he said all prophecies will be fulfilled eventually. Oh, yes. Yeah, and right. so... Yeah, and so even if it looks if it looks like things are going down, just wait. Just you wait. It'll yeah, happen eventually. He's going to do this by focusing on the breadth of the church instead of the membership numbers. In other words, how far it is spread instead of how much it has grown. Oh, and okay. I well, <laughs> and I said in this way, rather like Bilbo Baggins saying he felt like butter scraped over too much toast. All right, let's take a look. He felt thin. Remember? Yes, I do. Okay, here we go. Now listen Brothers carefully. Sisters, go ahead. Okay. Each of us participating in this October 2020 General Conference is among the nation's kindreds and tongues spoken of. Today, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints live in 196 nations and territories with 3,446 church stakes in 90 of them. We represent both geographic breadth and centers of strength. In 1823, who would have imagined that in the year 2020, there would be three countries, each with more than a million members of this church, the United States, 
Mexico, and Brazil, or 23 countries, each with more than 100,000 members of the church, three in North America, 14 in Central and South America, one in Europe, four in Asia, one in Africa. President Russell M. Nelson calls the Book of Mormon a miraculous miracle. Its witnesses testify, be it known unto all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. Today, general conference is available in a hundred languages. President Nelson has testified of Jesus Christ and his restored gospel in 138 nations and counting. Beginning with 5,000 printed copies of the 1831st edition of the Book of Mormon, some 192 million copies of all or part of the Book of Mormon have been published in 112 languages. They're also available widely, digitally. Currently, Book of Mormon translations include most of the 23 world languages spoken by 50 million people or more. Collectively, the native tongues of some 4.1 billion people. By small and simple things in which we are each invited to participate, great things are brought to pass. Can we stop there, Jonathan? For example, yeah. he's going to go on in a similar vein, but you get the idea of what he's doing, right? Uh, yeah, he's he's showing that the growth may not be in in population, but is going to be in in uh, other metrics. Right. There's all these other metrics which are uh, give the impression if you're not really paying attention that this church is going gangbusters all across yeah. the world. But he never actually says that, and the reason he doesn't say that is because he knows he can't say that. If he could say it, it would just be, hey, our numbers have increased this much over last year. Yeah, well, and it's funny because every time he brings up a statistic, I'm like, wait a second, the Jehovah's Witnesses have exceeded that. You know, when you just talk about, really? if you talk about population, but like the, the one he's like, you know, we, we've translated, we're now publishing in 112 languages. You just have to Google, like, how many languages are the, are the Jehovah's Witness publishing in? And let's see, in 2019, they've now feature content in 1000 languages five times as many languages as as the mormon church uh so i don't know if they're like saying okay we publish in braille in spanish and braille in english and that's you know now taken two languages and or three languages and turn them into more but uh you know that that if we're going to go by these metrics then you got to say okay well how are these other churches doing on that because then you also say well let's see the united states has a lot of j-dub publishers and there's a bunch of other things there so uh you know be careful i think it's the church is on better footing to do what uh was it irene or one of these other people did they, they said like the strength of the church is is it's growing in faith and devotion rather than any of these metrics because if you use any of these other metrics then someone else is going to come along and exceed them in a different group yeah the problem with faith and and belief and all that stuff is that you can't measure it or maybe that's a good thing about it that's Chris a good thing about it yes about it. you can't <laughs> exactly. measure it. what he's what elder gong's talking about is all these things that can be measured but it's like potential so here's president nelson testifying in 138 nations okay so there's the potential of everybody in those nation if they had all gotten together where it was the president also was speaking that they could have heard him, right? And yep. um, the Book of Mormon uh, translates into uh, 23 world language spoken by 50 million people or more. And then he says collectively the native tongues is some 4.1 billion people. So, you know, there's this 50 million people who, who 
have the opportunity. They could read the Book of Mormon if they yeah. wanted to, or 4.1 billion people who maybe yeah. could read the, the Book of Mormon if they wanted to. It's just like this potential that it has, but not actual numbers of anything that's really happening. Well, you know, the transcripts of all of our podcasts are automatically transcribed by Google. And then you can enter that into Google Translate. And that will go into the number of languages that serves over 8.4 billion people. We are the one true podcast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can you can play this game definitely any way you want. But he plays it masterfully, and I wanted to give him credit for that. But he well, also, he, yeah, go ahead. You know, he is our guy for data point statistics and, you know, giving that type of validity to things. Yes. So he does give a brief comment here, timestamp 5223, because you got to get in the plug for tithing. And oh, well, let's do it. Let's... Especially poor people paying tithing. That's important. A young boy in South America raises chickens and sells their eggs to help buy windows for the house his family is building. He pays his tithing first. He will literally see the windows of heaven open. Boom. That's the story that he tells. And he's giving in a list of similar stories about different kinds of things, right? But if you got a young boy in South America who's raising chickens and selling eggs to help buy windows for the house his family is building, I think we understand this is a poor family, right? Yeah. It's a poor family. He pays his tithing first. And once again, not only does this emphasize the idea that no matter how poor you are, you need to pay your tithing to the LDS church first. Yeah. But also it's this idea that it's similar to the story about Tanner, right? If you've got a deacon who is so um, sick with yep. cancer, but he'll come to church to pass the sacrament. Mm -hmm. If he's willing to do it, then nobody else should be complaining about it at all. Everybody should yeah. be doing it. I think it's the same kind of thing that goes on here. If you've got uh, a kid in South America, poor family, but he pays his tithing first, yeah, then nobody else has any excuse to not pay their tithing first. Yeah. And this is how Mormons do prosperity gospel, is that he's saying that by paying money to the church, he will literally see the windows of heavens open. And so, you know, even though he's talking about a metaphorical thing, we're going to use the word literal there, but that's just a rhetorical flourish. But, uh, you know, that's prosperity gospel, plain and simple, front and center. And, you know, when you appeal to the people who are in the most dire financial straits, then what you do by preaching a prosperity gospel is you target the most vulnerable, the most in need, and exploit their resources the most. It's like a very, it's a regressive religious donation scam. Mm. Uh, that targets the people who, uh, you know, need that 10% more than anybody else. But they do it under the guise that they will get more blessings, which are metaphorical, even though we're going to say they're literal. Yeah, and I thought the, the most striking example of that was in one of the 138 nations that President Nelson went to testify about Jesus and his restored gospel, which was over in Africa. I can't remember which country, but it was a poor country. People were members of the church. They were poor, and he encouraged them that they needed to pay tithing because he said, by paying tithing, you can lift your country out of poverty. Out of poverty, yeah. If, you know, Well, that's the thing is that, you know, if Gong really wants to say that the prophecies of Joseph Smith are being fulfilled and that the church is growing beyond imagination, he would just have to cite the hundreds of billions of dollars in the ends and peak investment funds. And there, there you go. The, the prophecy is fulfilled if we talk about dollars rather than people.
That is something that hovers like a specter over yeah. all of the shoulders of the general authorities as they speak now. And when they talk about things, it's hard to not think about the fact they've got over a hundred billion in the bank and still talking about a kid having to pay tithing first on the eggs he's selling so his family can have windows in their house. Yeah, exactly. He also addresses the subject of authenticity, though only in a tangential way, because I think that church leaders are getting sick and tired of members saying they want to be authentic. <laughs> is, is, is that the is that the next timestamp? Yeah, they gotta hate this. Uh, Don't be authentic. Okay, so we're gonna redefine authentic. Authentic doesn't mean being true to yourself. Authentic now means being true to the church. Here it is. Oh, this is such a common cult trope. Okay, let's take a look. This is why we need God's help to create lasting justice, equality, fairness, and peace in our homes and communities. Our truest, deepest, most authentic narrative, place, and belonging come when we feel God's redeeming love. Seek grace and miracle through His Son's atonement and establish lasting relationships by sacred covenant. Boom. So our most authentic narrative comes through being Mormon and yeah. being good Mormons. And he really gives that away in the last line where he says, and establish lasting relationships by sacred covenants, i.e. temple Mormons. Yeah, no, that's very true. So authentic, if you want to be authentic, get yourself back to the temple. No, I think it's a great insight that you have where they've taken this, this gem that becomes the glowing ember in the hearts of people who start to discover their own personal autonomy and authority as they separate themselves from the church. And that is the ability to be authentic, which if you go through that experience, it means being able to trust your own feelings, being able to, you know, if you disagree with a religious authority, after your study of the issue and your own interrogation of your conscience, being able to trust that that's you and not subverting your identity to the imposed religious authority above you. That is the authenticity here, but he's now claiming that he's saying now what you think is your authentic self can only truly be authentic if it's expressed through the avenues that we say you have to go through in the church. Right. The only way you can be authentic is by being inauthentic. Yeah, exactly. Um. <laughs> now, the next the next one is called There Was Bread, and this is by Bishop, the church bishop, W. Christopher Waddell. He wants to pronounce it Waddell because pronouncing it Waddle probably wouldn't be so good. Prior to travel restrictions. <laughs> the bouquet residents. All right, let's see here. <laughs> the what? The bouquet? What is that from? Okay, so there's a British uh, show called Keeping Up Appearances. And it's this family, this woman, her, her last name is Bucket, which is like the oh. most. <laughs> but she pronounces it bouquet. And so... Uh, <laughs> It's, it's, there's also a Saturday Night Live sketch where these parents are trying to come up with a name for the kids and every name that the, one, mo the mom suggests, the dad is like, no, no, people are just going to make fun of it. And then later the pizza delivery guy comes and he's like, w I'm, you know, I'm looking for the asswipe family. And he's like, it's a sweepe, a sweepe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I tell you what, we've got some important stuff to get through. We've only got, we've only got about, a, what, 36 minutes left. Time yes. flies when you're having fun. And this is one yes. of the things I want to do with you is trying to make general conference fun and uh, interesting, something that is not normally on its own. So yes. we've got a bishop here of the church. And this, let me talk a little bit about this talk because there's okay. really potentially the worst talk that we want to get to. 
in general conference for years past. But this is really interesting because remember Elder Bednar in the first session, and he talks about food storage, mm -hmm. which hasn't been talked in general conference in a coon's age. And we talked about that last time, that here the church has this problem, that they were talking about food storage all the time when I was growing up in the church, right? So they talked about food storage when the members of the church didn't need it. And then they stopped talking about food storage like, you know, 20 years ago. They stopped talking about it. I haven't heard about it in forever. And then all of a sudden now pandemic hits. And so they kind of got egg on their face. So this would be a good time to have been emphasizing food storage right before the pandemic hit. I mean, if they got a direct pipeline to God and God knows what's going to happen. Yeah. But they didn't. So now they've got to try and get the egg off their face. And Elder Bednar does that by talking about how, you know, kind of doesn't make any difference. Uh, uh, when it was told you needed to be following it. And I and my wife mm -hmm. were following it. And we had food stores. So man, any yeah. boo boo. But now uh, Bishop Waddell is going to be speaking about the same thing in his talk. So he's going to talk about food storage. And interestingly, between those two talks, they're going to talk about food storage more in this one general conference from October 2020 than food storage has been talked about for the 20 years before that. Oh, wow. All they're right. More. So let me just see here if I can figure out. I, I want to skip that first one, um, yeah. which doesn't have to do with food storage. Sorry about that. Oh, I'll, and I'll skip about Joseph in Egypt because he reads a story about Joseph in Egypt and the, the dream, right? Mm -hmm. The dream that he has of the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine. So he's able to do the the thing where he's the viceroy in Egypt. He's second to yes. Pharaoh and yes, he does yes, the yes. whole program. Everybody knows the story. We used to hear that story all the time when I was in the 70s and 80s yep. from leaders of the church. Uh, but not so much now. I actually went back and did a, a check on this story at the LES General Conference Corpus. And it looks like the story was last told 20 years ago oh. in 19 in general conference, at least in 19 what 99 or 19 and 1998 so it's been a long time since this story has been told but uh the bishop is bringing it out dusting it off and here it is again now that the cow has kind of gotten out of the barn i don't know if that was the fat cow or the lean cow who got out of the barn uh, but are we uh, at are we at timestamp one five oh five well let me just see here 10505 uh yes yes and the one thing he doesn't say but it's implicit in the story about joseph's dream is yeah. that God gave Joseph seven years advance warning. Mm. We didn't that's, have any advance warning on the pandemic. God is asleep at the switch. All right, let's take a look. Okay. In today's environment with a pandemic that has devastated whole economies as well as individual lives, it would be inconsistent with a compassionate savior to ignore the reality that many are struggling and ask them to begin building a reserve of food and money for the future. However, that does not mean that we should permanently ignore principles of preparation, only that these principles should be applied in wisdom and order, so that in the future, we might say, as did Joseph in Egypt, there was bread. The Lord does not expect us to do more than we can do, but he does expect us to do what we can do, when we can do it. Okay. As President Nelson reminded us in our last general conference, the Lord loves effort. Okay. Wait, so so it, is he saying there that, you know, okay, okay, we know that the pandemic has really destitute a lot of people. We don't expect you to go out and get food storage right now. 
Yes, that's what he's saying. Okay. He's basically okay. saying you guys have screwed up monumentally, but we're going to cut you some slack. Yeah, of course it's the members. It's the members at fault, not the leaders. For not oh, absolutely. For twenty. Yeah. And what he's going to do later on in the talk is he's going to try and make it sound like church leaders. Well, he says in the next part, church leaders have often encouraged Latter Day Saints to prepare for adversity in life by having a basic supply of food and water and some money and savings, right? Yeah. And then he gives a footnote, which is going to go to something from many years ago, but he doesn't say how long ago it is. He just says that church leaders have often encouraged Latter-day mm. Saints. He doesn't say it's been decades ago, yeah. although that's the case. Often. Right. He almost tips his hand, though. He almost tips his hand in a way when in that part that you played where he says, uh, however, no. Blah, 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 blah. It's a long sentence. Uh, Savior to ignore the reality that many are struggling and ask them to begin building a reserve of food. See, even he tacitly recognizes that they haven't been talking about this forever. Otherwise, he wouldn't be saying to begin yeah. building a reserve of food. So he's saying, look, this is a, there's a horrible. Do we need to go? Because he goes into a lot of detail about this pamphlet. Do we want to go to that part and listen to the? Uh, we, we can, sure. And the thing is that... Um, of course, I'm trying to look at the time, but um, uh, yeah, so he does that. He says, look, uh, you you guys, we, we, we've been telling you this for a long time. Obviously, you haven't done it. But now that the pandemic has is upon us and the economy sucks, it would be wrong or not compassionate to tell you to go out and start building food storage when you're having difficulty just putting food on the table. And once again, here, as much as anywhere else in this general conference, is that specter of the $100 billion in the bank that's hovering over his shoulder. This is the bishop, by the way. He's one of the few people on planet Earth who actually know the contents of the Ensign Peak account. He and the president. Oh, that's the, right. The yeah, presiding he, bishop. He knows. He knows exactly what's in there. And he knows that uh, he's going to sound like he's given a break to Latter-day Saints by saying, well, you don't have to make the food storage yet. Don't have to start building it right now. And we've got like, you know, 120 billion or whatever in the bank and all this other real estate. Uh, we're not going to talk about that because then you might think, well, why aren't you helping out with us? <laughs> yeah. But now he is going to go. And this is where he, he does a tap dance in trying to make it sound like uh, the church leaders have actually been on the ball and talking about this. Okay, let's see. I think I got that queued up. Let's see. Storage supply and a financial reserve. A resource entitled Personal Finances for Self-Reliance, published in 2017 and currently available on the church website in 36 languages, 36. begins with a message from the First Presidency, which states, The Lord has declared, It is my purpose to provide for my saints. This revelation is a promise from the Lord that he will provide temporal blessings and open the door of self-reliance. Accepting and living these principles will better enable you to receive the temporal blessings promised by the Lord. Is that enough? I invite you. Yeah, well, I don't know. It's just like... He's going to okay, go so on. And... Yeah, go ahead. If it's the Lord's purpose that he's going to provide for my saints, like $100 billion goes a long way. <laughs> Yes. But then he says, no, 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 no. The provision is we're going to teach you how to fish. We're not going to give you fish. Yes, exactly. We're not even going to give you a fish that you gave us in the first place and that we've right. been holding for you and making more fish out of. Yep. So exactly. He quotes the revelation that the Lord will provide for the temporal blessings of the saints. And that's not what the church is there to do. No, the no. church is there basically to take, even if you got to sell eggs, you know, for the windows, <laughs> you you keep sending your tithing this way. 
And when it comes to a bad situation like this, we have a lot of compassion for you. We know how hard it is out there for you guys. And we're praying for you. I think Elder Uthdorf lays it on pretty thick in that regard in his talk at the end of the session. But this is the other thing. He, he quotes from prophets or leaders of the church about food storage. And he gives a footnote. He doesn't say how long ago it was. And when you look at the footnote, you find out how long ago it was. But he will give the date on this resource titled Personal Finances for self excuse me, Personal Finances for Self-Reliance that he mm -hmm. talks about. Published in 2017. It's available in 36 languages. Everybody should know about this. And then he starts quoting from it. Only one problem with that, Elder Waddell. It doesn't mention anything about food storage. It doesn't? No. Is this, it's only about self-reliance? It's about what it says. Personal finances for self-reliance. And you'll notice that everything he quotes from it doesn't say anything about food storage. And you know perfectly well that if it said anything about food storage, he would be quoting it because it's from 2017. Yeah. In fact, I went and looked at this pamphlet. So there's the one place, by the way, where you would know that food storage would be mentioned in this pamphlet. If it were going to be mentioned in this pamphlet is under the heading, protect your family from hardship. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We have that up on the on the screen now where you can see that section. Is that in my notes? Yes. OK. Yeah. There's two things that you can do to protect your family from hardship, neither of which are food storage. One is develop a one month emergency fund <laughs> and two is acquire adequate insurance. So it's is this, this is what you would get going to a financial advisor. <laughs> Not yeah. so much a religious person. It's about finances. It's exactly, it's all that it's about is finances. And of course, there is the, the very important principle given up front and early about paying tithing. Yes. Before you, you know, do anything else. That has to be the number one item in your budget is paying tithing. But there's nothing in here about food storage. So he's trying to give the impression it's about food storage. I think he's trying to give that impression that it's about food storage. That He gives the date of 2017 for a reason. He wants mm -hmm. to show how recent it is, but unfortunately, it falls flat, at least when it comes to food storage. And then he's going to say, "What? when considering the principles of preparedness, we can look back to Joseph in Egypt for inspiration. Once again, he's going right back to the old food storage theme. Knowing what would happen would not have been sufficient to carry them through the lean years without a degree of sacrifice during the years of abundance. So that's a quote from his talk, right? Yep. But the critical okay, hold thing on. is... What? Go ahead. Go, what I was saying, I, I found that part if we want to hear it in his own words, because he oh, gets sure. to the, the clencher sure. question here. Okay. Rather than consume all that Pharaoh's subjects could produce, limits were established and followed, providing sufficient for their immediate as well as their future needs. It was not enough to know that challenging times would come. They had to act. And because of their effort, there was bread. So this leads to an important question. Therefore, what? Right. That's his question. Therefore, what? My question is different. I think my question is important. My question is, why didn't our leaders know the pandemic was coming so we could prepare the same way Joseph in Egypt knew the famine was coming seven years in advance so the Egyptians could prepare? <sighs> Uh, it's a good point, but I think people are going to say, well, the church was preparing. I mean, look how full the coffers of the church are. 
But this is akin to like, let's take now the Joseph story and let's say that Joseph had everybody take their surplus, put it in the silos, the famine <laughs> hits, and then Joseph is like, yeah, you guys really need to be, uh, you, you guys really need to be, you know, tightening your belt buckles and go and go. And then he's sitting on top of these silos full of grain and he's like, yeah, you guys, you know, it's too bad that you didn't uh, save any aside for yourself during all these times. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. That's a perfect analogy. It's a perfect. We really feel bad for you because we know it's a difficult time for you to start your own food storage. Yeah. But uh, yeah, and you know, so we'll give you, we'll cut you some slack there, and uh, we'll we'll certainly pray to God that He'll help you out. But I mean, when it comes to actually helping with all the seven years of plenty food storage mm -hmm. that you gave to us to put in the silo for you during these seven years. You're kind of out of luck. You're on your own. And that's one of the things that's really disappointing to me about uh, the LDS church when the rubber hits the road is that it teaches that we're all together. We're all in this together. We support each other. We're a team, right? Yeah. And there was actually a, a great statement by Brigham Young where he talked about uh, they're having a real lean winter and there aren't many people out there in the Salt Lake Valley. And he says, you know, we may go hungry, but none of us will starve. Not until we have eaten the last, what do you say, the last mule from the tip of its ears down to the end of its fly swatter or fly snapper or whatever <laughs> it was, right? So there's this idea, yeah, we'll all be hungry, but we're all going to share and share alike. We're going to share the hardship, but because of that, we will survive, right? Nobody's mm -hmm. going to starve mm -hmm. to death. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you that I see this and I'm, I'm very disappointed because it doesn't sound like that's the case anymore. It's really, you give us everything that you uh, make or the tithing plus the offerings and everything else. And then when bad things happen, hey, good luck. Yeah. Well, and, and, no and the way go, he go goes right into how to sublimate that into a religious principle by saying that, you know, all of these things that we've been talking about, even if we haven't talked about them recently, it's really all about spiritual things. And so, you know, it, it, it's really the, the the how spiritual is your household? How have you been storing up your spiritual reserves? And so then we can now excuse ourselves from not having talking about this, but then it's also we can condemn the members if they're complaining. Well, clearly their spiritual reserves have not been built up sufficiently. Oh, right. Right. It's a reflection of your, your spiritual state. Yes. So whether you have food exactly. storage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why Bednar has food storage and why Joe Blow convert from two years ago has never heard that the church has this whole prepper mentality in the religious uh, conference talks from the 1980s in the Cold War. Uh, they're like, well, what is this talking about? Yeah, and going on, he, he does do a couple more quotes, and I want to correct what I said about 20 years ago. He does give a quote in footnote 16 from Gordon B. Hinckley from an article, uh, if you are prepared, you shall not fear. Actually, that was probably given in general conference in October, 2005. Uh, so 15 years ago. Yes. Okay. That's a, that's the most recent he can get. The other footnote 17 is um, also from 2005. Cause there's a paucity of talks you can actually cite to it's the same one. And that, but he also has quotes from Elton Perry from 1995. Well, see, they've been talking about it all the time. They have, and they did all the time that I was very young in the church. Yes. Uh, okay. Is that everything on this talk that we need to see in real time? I think so. We've only got 20 minutes left, so we may as well get, we're going to skip the exquisite gift of the sun by Elder okay. Matthew S. Holland. Okay. 
who, by the way, is the son of, yes, Jeffrey Holland. Did he inherit Holland's jowls? I think that's an acquired gift of the spirit. But I think this is the kid who actually did get lost with uh, Elder Holland. Oh, Um, no way. (laughs) It'd be great if he gave like a competing story. I was out with my dad and he was clearly lost. That's And he tried to cover it up. (laughs) When he was a kid, he did give a talk in general conference and he did tell his side of the story, which is why we can compare them and find some uh, discrepancies. I mean, in his talk, it was the left road that they took and they should have taken the right road and the other talk is the right road they should have taken as the left road, blah, blah, blah. Okay, but I did that in another one. Okay, uh, another episode. So we're going to skip that even though there are a few things we can talk about. Okay, so we got the next talk. The culture of Christ. Yes. Okay. Let's let's. This may be one of the worst talks I have ever heard in general conferences by Elder William K. Jackson. It is staggering. It is Orwellian in some respects. And this is the one I mentioned before where Elder Jackson talks throughout his talk about culture when he obviously means religion and Mm, the LDS religion. Um, Let me see here. We talked about Elder Bednar having done that before and go ahead. All right. So let's, let's cue it up. Okay. This is what we'll end with. It may seem that culture is so heavily embedded in our thinking and behavior that it is impossible to change. It is, after all, much of what we feel defines us and for which we feel a sense of identity. It can be such a strong influence that we can fail to see the man-made weaknesses or flaws in our own cultures, resulting in a reluctance to throw off some of the traditions of our fathers. An overfixation on one's cultural identity may lead to the rejection of worthwhile, even godly, ideas, attributes, and behavior. I knew a wonderful gentleman. All right. That, he sets it up there. I think you're muted. Um, but he's clearly, you know, establishing a hierarchy of cultures here uh, in his discourse. Oh, absolutely. And it's very clear, too, that uh, he can say our cultures all day long. But when he says that culture can be such a strong influence that we can fail to see the man-made weaknesses or flaws in our own cultures... Mm-hmm. He is accepting everybody except for the LDS church in that statement. Yeah. All right. So let's let's go to the next uh, timestamp on that, I guess, to yeah. see where his... Uh, all right. Let's see here. Boop. Many of our world's problems are a direct result of clashes between those of differing ideas and customs arriving from their culture. But virtually all conflict and chaos would quickly fade if the world would only accept its original culture, the one we all possessed not so very long ago. This culture dates back to our pre-mortal existence. It was the culture of Adam and Enoch. It was the culture founded on the Savior's teachings in the meridian of time, and it is available to all women and men once again in our day. It is unique. It is the greatest of all cultures and comes from the great plan of happiness authored by God and championed by Christ. It unites rather than divides. It heals rather than harms. Okay, so now he's going to start doing his cheerleader section for the culture of what? The culture of God, by which he means the religion of God, by which he means the LDS church. So it's so clear that he's talking about the religion, but he wants to say culture much the same way as Elder Cook did in the previous session, yeah. and much the same way as Elder Christopherson talks about societies instead of religion. And one of the things that I thought was very interesting, let me see here. Um, 
the culture dates back. Okay, it's the original culture. And he's going to talk about it's the original culture. It's the best culture. And really, because all conflict and chaos would quickly fade if the world would only accept its original culture. Yeah. What is he saying? Uh, that uh, you have to go to a theocracy, a worldwide theocracy. <laughs> well, I think he's saying if everybody joined the Mormon church, we'd all get along. Oh, well, that's true. And, and and he even invokes the pre-mortal existence because he's like, you know, the culture we all knew not long ago. I'm like, what? There's, the earth is how... It, but then he's talking about each of us in our lives not long ago was before we were born. But think about that. In the Mormon story, there was a difference of opinion. And what did we do with the people with differences of opinion? Well, there was a great battle and we kicked them all out. And they didn't get the... They don't... They lose their eternal bodies and their eternal... Like, so it's the same thing of... You know, you're not one and, you know, be one, because if you're not one, you're not mine. That is the religious dogma. It's just like there's no room for differences of thought, differences of conscience in the Mormon conception of life and culture. It's obey, obey, obey. And if we can all just obey, then we'll all get along. And if you only just obey, you will be your authentic self. Yes. You know, you're not your authentic self unless you obey. Right. And, but he says in this last line, it, this culture, it unites rather than divides. I think you address that. Yeah, it unites as nobody gets as long as nobody gets out of line. Yeah. And well, and, and go ahead. And it heals rather than harms. Yeah. And the only question I have, hasn't the LDS church, at least at some point or other, created divisions and harms? Uh yeah. I mean, it divides families even today. Yes. Um you know, there's another conversation to be had in terms of some of the new secular philosophies that we are seeing now start to become more in the forefront in American society, certainly, do have a tendency to divide. And it's a different philosophical approach to how we address differences in cultures. So you can go back to the 1960s in the civil rights era, and you can see that there's the kind of the, uh, the Malcolm X philosophy and the Martin Luther King Jr. philosophy. And people who study this say that the reason that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. succeeded in advancing the civil rights uh, agenda at the time was because he cast a broad unifying identity of people. We are all God's children. We are all humans. We are all brothers. And so we can look at wanting to treat people equally and conceive of people as equal before God. And then you have a different philosophy that we're starting to see become more prevalent now, which says, no, 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 no. If you start taking that colorblind approach, then you're going to lose out on the uniqueness of everyone. So we need to lead with our differences. And people are having a real struggle about, is that actually the right approach? Does that actually cause divisions in society? If now, by rather than seeing us as universally human, we're going to see ourselves as each different intersectional identity. And then we now have to compete for where our place is in hierarchy of society because power dominates everything. And it's just, you know, I think the church is taking the approach that it sees that way of looking at things as divisive and not unifying. And so by couching it, particularly in this talk about cultures, it's trying to push back against that because it that way of looking at the world is really what's driving a lot of young people. When they talk about um, the way that they conceive of themselves and their identity, they're adopting a lot of this uh, intersectional language. And that is something that is very antithetical to the way that the church uh, views the world.
But that's just my take on it. But I've been kind of researching and studying that a lot. So that's on my mind. Yeah, well, I read uh, 1984 not that long ago. And this is the next part of this talk where it becomes positively Orwellian. Having established that when he says the culture, he's talking about the LDS church. Go ahead and play this next clip and notice what he right. says. He says, this culture espouses the concept of equal worth. Okay, there let's is take a look. No Okay. Oh, go ahead. I want, I want to hear him in his oh, words real quick. The gospel okay. of Jesus Christ teaches us that there is purpose in life. Our being here is not just some big cosmic accident or mistake. We are here for a reason. This culture is grounded in the testimony that our Heavenly Father exists, that He is real and loves each one of us individually. We are His work and His glory. It espouses the concept of equal worth, there is no recognition of caste or class. We are, after all, brothers and sisters, spirit children of our heavenly parents, literally. There is no prejudice or us versus them mentality in the greatest of all cultures. Okay. Really? I, I mean, this is actually jaw-dropping, jaw-dropping for me. So the culture is grounded in the testimony of Heavenly Father. Note he says this culture espouses the concept of equal worth. But does it really? He says there's no recognition of caste or class. I mean, this is a wonderful idea to be sure, but during the priesthood temple ban, which is over half of the history of the LDS church, by the way, yeah. how can we say there was no recognition of caste or class? One class of men could get the priesthood. Another class of men could not. Yeah. One class could go to the temple to receive the most sacred ordinances to get to the uh, celestial kingdom. And the other class could not. So if he is saying now that the true culture, which he is saying, has these aspects, then at the same time, he is also saying that the LDS church was not the true culture for more than half of its existence. Oh, that's that's too critical there. Uh, you, you, remember, God, the explanations provided were mistakes, but not the ban itself. There was a reason and a purpose, and we just don't know what it is. Well, let me follow up on that. Let me follow up on that and say this. What are the classes and the castes that continue to exist in the LDS church? I mean, we're talking about men such as women who cannot receive the priesthood and therefore mm -hmm. perform ordinances or preside in the church. But he's going to address women in the church, but in an unexpected way. And once All again, right. this is absolutely jaw dropping. And I'll, I'll stop you here after basically every line. After okay. time step, 125.17. Here we go. We enjoy a culture of revelation centered on the word of God as received by the prophets and personally verifiable to each one of us through the Holy Ghost. All humankind can know the will and mind of God. So yes, definitely this is the LDS church is the LDS culture. We enjoy a culture of revelation, except when it comes to letting us know that a pandemic is on the horizon. And you'll personally get a confirmation of that. Uh, so you'll know that it's true. And if you right. don't get a confirmation, just keep praying because eventually you will. And once again, yes, he does that, doesn't he? Because any personal revelation is only good insofar as it verifies yes. to each one of us what it is the leaders say. You're right. This culture champions the principle of agency. The ability to choose is extremely important for our development and our happiness. It is a culture of learning and 
Now, that's interesting because in the written text, it says choosing wisely is essential. He didn't actually read that part. Yeah. Uh, choosing wisely is essential. Yes. And if you don't choose wisely, you will quickly find yourself ejected from the culture. True enough. Study. We seek knowledge and wisdom and the best in all things. There you go. So he had said it is a culture of learning and study. And this oldest and best culture restricts your knowledge and wisdom to the approved sources. We must be cautious in our research for truth, as Elder Oaks reminds us. And may I suggest, Jonathan, that research is not the answer? Very true. It is a culture of faith and obedience. Faith in Jesus Christ is the first principle of our culture, and obedience to his teachings and commandments is the outcome. These give rise to self-mastery. Again, how clear does he have to be that he's talking about the LDS church when he mentions culture? And actually, these don't lead to self-mastery, like he says, as much as they lead to the church being your master. Oh, that's, that's such a good point, because at every so, step of the way, uh, you know, faith and obedience. And this thing is a lot of Christians say the first principle is love. And whereas the church is using, no, 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 the first principle is faith in Christ. And that becomes now the lever at which we get you to obey our leaders who tell you what Christ is. Right. And don't what forget. he tells you to do. Yeah, Elder McConkie, Elder Brewster McConkie was famous for saying that obedience is the first law of heaven. Yeah, and it is in the temple ceremony. You know, that's the first thing that you, uh, you know, covenant to. True miracles abound in this, the oldest of all cultures, wrought by faith in Jesus Christ, the power of the priesthood, prayer, self-improvement, true conversion, and forgiveness. Yeah, true miracles abound in this culture. We just don't hear about these miracles very much in general conference. Well, except for houses burning down. Now, and note how he has to add to the idea of miracles, the list of miraculous things. He lists prayer, self-improvement, and forgiveness. He has to lump those in with true miracles just to flesh it out and make sure that there are some that are actually talked about. Well, the real miracle really is how you come to know your authentic self by doing those things. Your authentic self being the, the mold in which the church places you. Yes, exactly. And how you achieve self-mastery by doing everything that you're told to do. <laughs> it is a culture of missionary work. The worth of souls is great. In the culture of Christ, women are elevated to their proper and eternal status. They are not subservient to men, as in many cultures in today's world, but full and equal partners here and in the world to come. Okay, this was <laughs> staggering to me. What did you think about that? I mean, I, I, I heard this and I thought, is he talking about the Mormon church here? This is a classic, me thinks he doth protest too much kind of moment. It's like he's presenting the Mormon church in a way that's totally unlike the Mormon church and saying, this is the Mormon church. Yeah. It's like and the it, guy who said that, I'm so glad that the church has stood against racism and all of its manifestations from the beginning. It's like yes. a blatant misstatement of the reality in order to like make it a talking point. I, I don't know. Well, they know that that's what they should be saying. So they say it in spite of the fact that the history of the church does not support it. And this isn't even just the history of the church. This is right now in the LDS church. He says, in the culture of Christ, women are elevated to their proper and eternal status. They are not subservient to men. As in many cultures of the day of the world. What? <laughs> but they're it's full and equal partners here and in the world to come. They're full and equal partners. So 
I, I could imagine a woman taking this talk into her bishop and saying, okay, so I'll be blessing the sacrament next Sunday? Yeah. Uh, well, equality does not mean that you're the same. We have different roles, but you're equal in the sight of God. <laughs> right. Equality does not mean equal. Self-mastery does not mean self-mastery. Authenticity does not mean authenticity. And religion uh, apparently means society. We have this complete overturning of things where what has a, words that have a common understanding that we all base yeah. our communications on are now being used in other subversive ways yeah. in order to try and say something and make it sound like the church is great. We're ahead of the curve. Everybody's equal in this church. Women are equal with men. And I suppose somebody out there who doesn't know anything about the church and just happened to tune into General Conference while they were flipping between programs might look at that and say, oh, well, that's cool. What a great church and go on. But if they spend any time, like five minutes finding out about the church, they're going to say, what is this guy talking about? How does he say this with a straight face? I get the feeling that I'm being lied to. Mm -hmm. And honestly, that's that's the only thing. If you've had your eyes open in the church you can only see this as a complete misrepresentation. But if you're still the chapel Mormon, where anything that the brethren say at any given time, you, because you've already pre-accepted them as truthful people, will now start to massage your own experience and your own understanding in your mind to, to make a resolution of that and to reconcile it. Okay, yeah, uh, yeah, men are equal to women. They're not subservient. You know, the, the Relief Society president is not subservient to the bishop, She's serving alongside the bishop. And so it's so true. And, you know, part of her devotion is calling upon his wisdom and his leadership. And it's just, it's one of those things where the, the faithful and the people in the pews will lap it up while it's like a greater division between people who are starting to think for themselves and see this as a bunch of gaslighting horseshit. Wow. You said the uh, H word. Uh, it was Yu-Gi-Oh! He, he made me do it. <laughs> well, we are actually at the end of our time. And yes, so I wanted are. to make sure that we, we played that talk. That is in my estimation. And I encourage you to go back and listen to the whole thing. It's remarkable, really. Possibly one of the worst talks that I've ever heard in the history of my attendance at General Conference. It is so bad. I mean, it's one thing to hear people get up there and twist things or, or like Elder Gong did, talk about one thing when he's trying to give the impression of talking about yeah. another. It's another thing to actually get up there and listen to a general authority lie directly to my face and apparently expect me to believe it. Right. All the time doing what he's essentially doing here is denigrating any other culture other than the pressed white shirt, suit tie, suit and tie wearing 1950s businessmen culture of the uh, American based multi-billion dollar religion. So that when they go throughout the world and they intersect with other cultures and they interact with other cultures and try to induce those people to come in here, they tell them that those things that are unique and different about your culture are less than, are worse, are wrong, and you need to abandon them for this superior culture. Do you have, and, do you have oh, sorry. Go ahead. I just, I just think that's, that's a terrible footing to stand on as a religion, and it's, it's going to create more divisiveness as more people become awake to the inherent wrongness of that idea. Thank you. Do you have three more minutes? Yeah, let's do it. Can you just play that next timestamp? We want to hear from the Silver Fox. We do not want to omit his his words. And just play that clip if you would. And I just want everybody to think about this because I referred to it before. This. this is what 
This is what he says. And the specter of the hundred billion plus in the bank is over his shoulder while he's commiserating mightily with the members of the church and all they're going through because of the pandemic. But he's not going to apparently uh, do anything about it in a real and concrete and financial kind of way. All right. I doubt there's a person who hears my voice or reads my words who has not been affected by the worldwide pandemic. To those who mourn the loss of family and friends, we mourn with you. We plead with Heavenly Father to comfort and console you. Long-term consequences of this virus go beyond physical health. Many families have lost incomes and are threatened with hunger, uncertainty, and apprehension. We admire the selfless efforts of so many to prevent the spread of this disease. We are humbled by the quiet sacrifice and noble efforts of those who have risked their own safety to assist, heal, and support people in need. Our hearts are full of gratitude for your goodness and compassion. We pray mightily that God will open the windows of heaven and fill your lives with God's eternal blessings. And all of that and a dime will get you a cup of coffee. Yeah. Uh, okay, so did you want to move on on that one or just close with that? Well, that's the main, oh, I do want, can we, I do want to play the next thing. I mean, this is a whole idea about, they're very nice sentiments that he's saying, but they're sitting on a, over a hundred billion. Jonathan, the, me the members are praying mightily that the church will open the windows of the uh, ends and peak funds and perhaps give a little bit of assistance where they claim that they've been waiting to do that for so long. And those prayers are not going to be answered, apparently, which was said to be saved for a rainy day. Remember, that's what they said when they finally got caught yeah, with their pants down and found out not, about this hundred twenty billion. COVID is not rain. <laughs> still a lot of unknowns about this virus. Okay, here's the deal. Here's the deal where he says, I do. here's the deal where he says, God wasn't caught off guard by this virus. He knew it was coming. He just didn't get the word. I guess President Nelson just didn't get the memo. Well, you know, he had to approve that logo change. So there's, he was he was busy. Yeah, you're right. This virus did not catch Heavenly Father by surprise. He did not have to muster additional battalions of angels, call emergency meetings, or divert resources from the World Creation Division to handle an unexpected need. My message today is that even though this pandemic is not what we wanted or expected, God has prepared his children and his church for this time. That's it. He uh -huh. says, we did not expect this pandemic. Nobody expected this pandemic, not even God's prophets, and apostles. So even though Amos 3, 7, which was a seminary scripture, says that, yea, surely God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets, the pandemic was an exception to that rule. Yeah. Well, unless it's not God's doing, you know, he could have been the clockmaker that set things in motion. And uh, it's just, it's, it's just evasive and uh, a way for them to avoid the, um, the reality for people to realize that they, their claimed powers are not so real. Anyway, I got to log off. You got to go. It's been great. It's been wonderful. I've had a great time. Thank you so much for Same. making this possible, Jonathan.
All right, well, until next time, if there is a next time, and I know there's a lot of stuff to get through, we'll probably not be able to finish it all, but thank you so much for joining us, and this has been a Coffee Talk on Things and Stuff, and we will see you next time.